Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Before we get started, I'm going to quickly say a thank you to Smith AI, who's, of course, sponsoring the show. I am Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, as always, is Ellie Mistal from Above the Law, but also we're joined by Stacey Zaretsky of Above the Law. It's a big Above the Law love-in today. How you doing, Stacey? I'm great. How are you? I got lobster roll on my shirt, but it's purple, so it's all good. Nobody's going to know, except for the people I just told. Right, which is everybody. So, uh, yeah, no, so how are you doing today, Ellie? Not great, Bob. You're not great. So this is where we grind our gears, as, as frequent listeners of the show know. Uh, what is really bothering you today? One of my favorite actors, one of my favorite Jedis, apparently... Is it Jedis or is it Jedi? Jedi. Isn't it You're already right. plural? That's right. You're right. You're Good correction. One of my favorite Jedi, Qui-Gon, apparently spent a week... Trolling the alleys of the UK looking for, quote, a black bastard to kill out of revenge for a friend of his that was sexually assaulted. If he'd have only started with Darth Vader, then we wouldn't have had any trouble. I have a problem with this. Yeah. No, that makes sense. As a potential black bastard, I have a problem with this. Fair enough. And, you know, I, I want to bring, I know a lot of our, uh, we, we do have a diverse set of listeners here. However, most of you are, are white. Um and I want to bring you inside a little bit to some of the, the, the real debate that's happening in the black community, because on the one side, you have a lot of African-American people, a lot of black Europeans who are saying, you know what? He didn't actually kill anybody. And we just got too many crazy ass white people who actually will kill people to worry about Liam Neeson and his like revenge fantasy killing. This is not a real issue. On the other side, you basically have like me and like Charles Blow who are like, no, 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 this is actually a terrible problem. And while, yes, I am so super happy that Liam Neeson was able to keep it together enough to not commit a hate crime, good job, boyo, I have a bit of a problem. Put like this, guys. If you can imagine being like the waiter who served Liam Neeson, the black waiter who served Liam Neeson during his like week-long rage fest, like, would that have been a good table for you to wait on? Like, what is he going to say, right? I don't know what you're asking for, but I'll tell you I have no money. What I do have is a particular set of hate yeah. I, makes, that makes me a nightmare for waiters like you. Like, this is the, the kind of the casual racism. And look, I, I'm, I'm being trying to be a little bit funny. But, like, casual Try. racism still, <laughs> still hurts people, right? Mm-hmm. It still makes people have a bad day. It still makes people have an extra drink of alcohol, right? It still makes people just – it diminishes my enjoyment of my own life. When some random guy is angry at me for no reason other than the color of my skin. Yeah. And that's why what Liam said is a problem. Not because, like, okay, now we have to cancel Liam Neeson and, like, burn our Taken DVDs. Just, just we have to understand that this kind of casual racial hate is still not good and should still be, you know, criticized. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. And, you know, in a week that had uh, its share of racial missteps uh blackface history month right one of my friends put it best on twitter which was uh, said something like 
what if we all just stop Black History Month and start it over and see if it works right? Uh, <laughs> because it's time for a reboot. Well, anyway, there we go. That was our grinding of gears. Real quick, we're going to do our ad read because that's what we're here for. So are you missing calls? Are you spread too thin? Interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month. Get a free trial at smith.ai. All right, Ellie. So with that said, we have a contest here at Above the Law, and that contest is for the Lawyer of the Year. And so we have the Lawyer of the Year here. So Stacy, why don't you actually, I'm being directed, run us through what we've got on tap for today's show. For today's show, we have our 2018 Lawyer of the Year, Michael Avenatti. You may know him as representing Stormy Daniels. You may remember him. You may remember him. (laughs) From putting his foot up Donald Trump's ass. That too. Uh, Mr. Avenatti, are you there? I am. It's great to join you. Thanks so much for coming on. And congratulations on your award. Well, thank you. You know, when I ran through the list of uh, past recipients, uh, it's a rather impressive list, to say the least. So I'm, uh, I'm humbled uh, and honored by the inclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we look, we usually do it just it's a user poll. Um, so you had the uh, will of the people uh, behind you. Let's look, since we have you on, I don't want to soft sell anything. This podcast has a lot of legal listeners, and I think one of the most obvious questions for our kind of practitioner audience is, how did you just get, like, what was the closing of the deal for you to get Stormy Daniels as a client? You know, here at Above the Law, we know some porn lawyers, right? Like, you know, one of our, one of our, I guess he used to be a friend of the show. I don't know if he still is since he's gone full dark side. But, you know, Mark Rondazza used to be a friend of the show. We understand that community. That's not your community. So how did this relationship develop? How did, how did you get the client? Well, you're correct. It's not my community. And I had never previously represented anyone in the porn industry uh, during my nearly 20 years of practice. Even though I've been practicing in Southern California for many, many years, I had had other opportunities to represent adult film actors, producers, companies, uh, and had declined all of those offers of representation for various reasons. And frankly, when this opportunity presented itself, uh, you know, a lot of people have a very difficult time going back in time and thinking about what people knew and what they did not know um, at that particular point in time. You know, I first met Stormy Daniels in February of last year. In fact, it hasn't even been a year. Seems like it's been a lot longer than that, uh, obviously, for a bunch of reasons. But I first met her in February of last year. I was referred, she was referred to me by another lawyer. And I was very skeptical prior to the meeting. I had significant doubts as to whether I was even going to get involved. I came to that meeting with preconceived notions and misconceptions about what she was going to be all about. I prejudged her, if you will, which is entirely inappropriate, but we do it all the time, unfortunately. And within about 30 minutes or less, she blew me away by her level of intelligence and how insightful she was, how humble she was, her degree of common sense. And uh, we really hit it off. And I decided uh, shortly thereafter that I would be willing to represent her. 
can you talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, to the extent that you can, about the vetting process? Because I think that one of, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, but certainly the preconceived notion that I would have had if representing um, a client in the adult film industry is that, you know, as a lawyer, your reputation is on the line kind of every day with every client that you represent. How do you vet you know, a story like this and a claim like this to get yourself to the point where you're confident that you can put your reputation, um, align your reputation with hers? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and in, I've been asked a lot of questions in a lot of interviews over the last year, and, and no one has asked me that question. So thank you for that question. We went through an extensive vetting process relating to Stormy and her story, her recollection of events after she uh, retained me in our office, my office. Uh, and before we filed the complaint, a few weeks later, we did go through an extensive vetting process. But you make an excellent point that I think has been lost throughout this process. You know, I, I was very fortunate prior to meeting Stormy Daniels to have had a substantial legal career, a number of very large verdicts and settlements, over a billion dollars as lead counsel. Uh, including a $4 million jury verdict in April of 17, which was the third largest in the country. And I was fortunate enough to get a lot of awards for that verdict. So I had a substantial career. I was very, again, fortunate to have been, uh, to have had a lot of great clients who entrusted me with a lot of very big cases that were important to them, cases that had been on 60 Minutes and the like. So I took a huge risk, a huge risk by taking on Stormy and her case and her cause. And at that point, things looked a lot different than they do today. A lot different. <laughs> uh, you know, Stormy had been on Jimmy Kimmel. There had been some press around this. There had been more press around the Make America Horny Again tour, which was her right. tour that she had launched. Her case and her cause and the way that America viewed her was entirely different than it is today. Uh, and I think that the change uh, has been brought about by, you know, certainly her, uh, but also, you know, not to be egotistical, but by the strategy that I employed in the way that we rolled this case out and the way that we identified that the court of public opinion was going to be of critical importance. And because of the media strategy that we used, which I took a lot of heat over, over the weeks and the months. And I think there's a lot of jealousy in the profession about the way that I went about it. But you know what? It was spot on. And I say that unapologetically. Uh, if it had been handled in a different way, there is no way that we would be where we are today. There's no way that Michael Cohen would have pled. Things would look very, very differently, but for Stormy Daniels. No, look, I think if you hadn't played it that way, Michael Cohen might still be free. Um, but the flip side of that, Ryan, is that while, yes, you played it correctly for this client in this situation, I guess the next kind of practitioner question is, how is it affecting your ability to attract new business and new clients and other clients who maybe don't want the media attention um, that now, just by dint of your name, that you're going to bring to any case going forward? Yeah, that's another great question. And I do think that that is certainly a downside. You know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of tremendous upside associated with this representation. You know, the notoriety, the name recognition uh, has certainly been flattering, positive 
for the most part, has led to a lot of additional business. You know, we get hundreds of calls and inquiries a day from people that want me and us to represent them. Now, some of those are, how do I say, uh, wingnut calls, like people that have had ships supposedly installed in their foot by way of the CIA and things like that. Uh, But a number of the other calls are legitimate cases, and, and we vet those cases to determine who we're going to represent. Now, on the flip side, as you pointed out, there are people that I think shy away from hiring me because of the notoriety. But I think net-net, in fact, I don't think, I know, net-net, it's been very, very positive. Although I will say that one of the things that is not understood until you're really involved in a case like this, when you take on a case of this magnitude, with this much scrutiny, that is this high profile, it really dominates your life. And in a lot of ways, it dominates Mm. your practice. And especially in an environment right now that is so toxic, this political environment, it is more toxic than any environment I've ever seen before. I used to be involved in politics for many, many years, worked on over 150 campaigns back in the 90s. So I'm not new to the game. But when you throw your hat into this ring, you subject yourself um, and your family, your practice, and others to a huge degree of scrutiny and highly likely unfair attacks by people that aren't really interested in the truth. They just want to damage you. They just want to do collateral damage to you and your reputation in the interest of politics and to further their own viewpoints and their own agendas. And truth really goes out the window at that point to a significant degree. So, you know, a lot of people see how much television exposure I've gotten and the notoriety and, you know, they think that this has just been, you know, one great ride. It's just been nothing but positive for me, but that's really not true. I mean, you take something like this on, you sacrifice an enormous amount on the personal side. And on the flip side, you know, this has not been a financial boon for me or my firm by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) I mean, we, we, we haven't been paid basically anything in connection with this representation. The money that was raised went to out-of-pocket costs, including Stormy's security expenses, which have, you know, been hundreds of thousands of dollars, et cetera. And, you know, I, I don't get paid for interviews on CNN and MSNBC. Right. Some people think that somehow, you know, I'm on their payroll while well, I'm not on their payroll. So there's been a lot yeah. of sacrifice by me, other people in my firm, and certainly by Stormy. You know, actually, I have a question to go down a complete side note. You mentioned security costs for Stormy. One of the things that editorially a decision we kind of made, uh, well, at least I did over here, was to stop the the standard AP style of saying Stormy Daniels, whose given name is blah, blah, blah. I kind of stopped that because I felt like that was exposing, you know, like contributing to and exposing her to threats and trouble that she didn't really deserve. Uh was that a large part of you think of why security costs became a whole thing that the media was going around and letting everybody know, hey, this is who you should look up? You know, I, I don't um, I don't think that that really contributed to the security cost. I mean, I think just the nature of this case, the nature of the belief, rightfully so, that this could be an Achilles heel to Trump and his presidency. You know, the stakes in this thing are enormous. And a lot of people 
are very, very nervous about it and have been very, very nervous about it relating to what it could result in. And I think that's why both her and I have become targets. Now, on the subject of how your practice has gotten into, like, been under assault after you became more more famous, you've had this this issue with some partner who came out and says that they are owed money. What's going on with that case at this point, or are well, you still litigating and not ready to, we're, not we're able still, to do much? So. Yeah. Yeah, we're still litigating. I mean, it was a partner in name only. It was a non-equity partner at the firm, uh, more of an employee, frankly, you know, who claimed that he was entitled to a bunch of money. And, you know, we're still in the process of of battling that out. But, you know, that would be an example of something that gets blown out of proportion, like so many other things that people can make hay out of uh, in connection with with something like this. I didn't know it was non-equity. I thought it was... Since, oh, no, no. Yeah, no, that is one so of the... You need, like, Law 360 on this. Not equity partner. You're like, oh. Uh. No, I mean, no, that, that's, that's been a detail of this case is the disagreement over that. Yeah, definitely. Since you kind of brought it up, I want to I segue a little bit into your political background and, and your thoughts there. But I want to start by talking a little bit about where you kind of hit the hardest, um, which is Twitter. Your Twitter game is strong, and your Twitter game, it can be vicious, and the Twitter game coming at you is vicious. Like, we talk to a lot of attorneys who think about getting onto Twitter, you know, and, and would have nightmares about getting onto your Twitter kind of thing. How do you, I mean, I guess, A, when did you decide that you were going to take on this particularly aggressive Twitter persona? And, and kind of, B, what's your feelings on Twitter, especially in a world where Twitter, we now realize, is so important to our politics because we live in the worst timeline? Uh, <laughs> well, let, let me say this. So, you know, I, I'm the first one to be highly critical of Donald Trump. I, I generally think that he's a moron about 95 <laughs> percent of things in life. Um, in fact, I don't think I know he is. But there's five percent of things that he's actually brilliant about. And it just so happens that that five percent are critically important as it relates to his ability to initially be elected and now to potentially be reelected. He's excellent at marketing and branding. He's exceptional at messaging. He knows how to rally his base. He knows how to hit various uh, points as it relates to the necessity for him to do so, playing into his political strategy. I mean, the guy is is really, really good at a number of things that are important in this game, the game of politics. And too many Democrats and too many people continue to underestimate him. And that's that is a critical mistake. Now, the reason I bring that up is, is because when I started this case, I think the day before I filed the complaint, I had 551 Twitter followers. It's not 1,000. <laughs> okay? It was about 550. I think it was 551. All right? I now have whatever it is, 850,000. And my initial use of Twitter stemmed from the following. Once we filed the case and I started getting all of these press inquiries, in years past when I had a high profile case, and there were a number of them, but nothing of this magnitude, nothing even approximating Mm -hmm. it, I would send out emails, like an email press list, like an email press release or something like that to individuals that we would compile and we would keep a press list on. Mm -hmm. Well, that became unmanageable because of the number of inquiries that we were receiving on a daily basis. And so Mm -hmm. I resorted to Twitter 
because it enabled me to disseminate information very quickly to a broad range of people in one fell swoop. I could just direct people to my Twitter. And once people became aware of the fact that I largely communicated information by Twitter, they would not even make inquiry to the office or to me. They would just go to my Twitter. And that is how they would keep up with information. And it works beautifully. And Trump is one of the first people that really figured this out on a mass scale, right? I mean, there were a lot of people that used Twitter before Donald Trump. There's no question about that. But in this game, I mean, he utilizes Twitter more effectively. Now, whether you agree with what he tweets or not, or whether it's completely irresponsible, which 90% of the time it is. Whether it keeps you up at night and gives you nightmares. You got to give him props for being able to utilize it. Because what he's done is he cuts out the middleman, right? It used to be back in the day, you'd issue a press statement or a press release, and then you would hope that the members of the press would use certain quotes or certain portions of it. You'd hold your breath and see what the story is. Trump figured out, well, I can just send out a tweet and if I don't provide any other context about that subject, the press will print my tweet in the story or they'll put it up on the TV screen. That's a very powerful way to get your message out if you think about it. Right. But part of also what you do, and I think you're, I think you're right to talk about the effectiveness of getting you know, the message out and getting your client's message out through this platform – the dark side of the platform is the trolls, right, and, and and the haters and how you deal with them. Now, I, you know, I don't have, I'm not at your level, but you know, I, I get my own kind of trolls, and you know, usually I'm kind of like, oh, that that's mean, I would, <laughs> that hurt my feelings, or you know, I'll make a I'll make a little joke, right? You you get a troll and you try to like bring down the fire of God on them. I mean, like you come <laughs> you come with a meteor. And so I'm asking kind of like, how did you decide to go that way to really kind of light up the trolls and the haters that you get? Because you could just mute them. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't respond to all of them. You know, a lot of it has to do with my perception of what they say, whether it's someone that is consistently attempted to come after me my mood of the day, how busy I am, whether I want to, uh, <laughs> in fact, deal with it or not. You know, I will tell you that when it was rumored and I was giving serious uh, credence to the possibility of running for the presidency, the trolls and the bot activity increased exponentially. And what a lot of people don't know is, and I'm going to pull this percentage out of thin air, but I think it's probably pretty close. I'll bet you that 20% of the Twitter users are not legitimate Twitter users, especially 20% of the people that are commenting on political issues or trolling. You know, there is an entire misinformation, disinformation campaign going on at the hands of Russia and others as it relates to Twitter and Facebook. I know that may sound a little crazy, but it's actually not. And anyone that's involved in this game will tell you that it is absolutely uh, happening. Once I declared in November that I was not going to run, the troll and bot activity on my Twitter account went down almost overnight by 75%. And I have people that track that. And we can actually tell which accounts in many instances are legit or illegitimate. 
that's interesting. But honestly, if Jack sues me now, you got to help me out because I don't want that heat. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't let you get out of here without asking you about. I think one of your your more interesting comments, and this is a fight that Joe and I actually have quite a bit um, about whether or not it's going to take a white male to beat Donald Trump. So Joe and I have this debate, and it's funny, we're kind of on opposite sides of this, but to me, the real debate is there are 80,000 people. There are 80,000 people that we got to flip, that a Democrat's going to have to flip in the upper Midwest, right? 80,000 people in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, um, what have you. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, not Minnesota, but yeah. Um, um, to flip, right? And so Joe generally, and I'm, I'm, I'm painting broad strokes, right, is the kind of guy that says, that, well, what we got to do is take those 80,000 people who voted for Trump and get them back to the Democrat side. Right, though I do not think that is necessarily... You don't think it requires a white man to do that? Oh, I do not. I generally think that, no, screw those people. Once a Trump voter, always a Trump voter, get off my lawn. What we have to do is inspire 90,000 people um, who didn't vote at all last time um, to come out and vote. And that's where I kind of come from. You might not need a white man to do that. You're kind of coming, at least as I understood your point, you're kind of coming from in order to flip those 80,000 people, you need a white man to do it. Is that a fair way of thinking about your point? Or? No, and you know, I made some comments in a different context in connection with a lengthy time interview that was done, or numerous interviews across many months. They were doing a profile piece. Molly Ball was, who I have zero respect for. I've dealt with journalists all over the world at the highest levels of journalism. She's a disgrace to the profession based on what she did in connection with this hit piece. Uh, she took my statement out of context. Uh, she married statements across multiple interviews on different topics, put them together to make it look like, you know, I believe that only uh, a white male could win and that uh, she took an, another statement entirely out of context and married it with that. And I was disgusted by it. And I demanded repeatedly that they release the full transcript for the interview. I want people to see that. And they've refused, which should tell you everything you need wow. to know about um, whether that piece is to be believed. But let's get to the heart of the issue, which is what you raised. Clarify away. Wow. I, I, think, I think we've got to do both. Okay. I think if the Democrats want to recapture the White House, we cannot write off the Trump voters. We cannot write off the 3 or 4 or 5% of folks that are still in play. Because if we write them off now, if we shame them, if we make them wrong, we risk losing them forever. I firmly believe that. And so we cannot write them off. We need to convince them that they were victims of a grand con by a very good con man, Donald Trump, who promised them the world and has delivered uh, not much, if anything. So I think we have to target those folks in those key swing states. At the same time, I think we also have to increase turnout among young voters in particular. And I think that that will pay dividends down the road. I think that we have to do both. Now, do I think that that has to be a white male? No, I do not. But what I do think is this. If we think that we're going to beat Donald Trump by talking about puppies and daisies and this idea of hope and unity, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. The only way you're going to beat this guy, if he is the nominee, and that's still a big if, but if he's the nominee, 
is by nominating somebody that can get down in the gutter with him and trade shots with him and really battle for the future of the Republic, who can then pivot and govern in a unifying manner. You don't have to govern the way you campaign. In fact, most people don't govern the way they campaign. The problem with Donald Trump is he governs in much the same way, if not worse, than he campaigned. Here's the other thing that I'm frustrated by. There was only and there will ever only be one Barack Obama. Just like there was only one John F. Kennedy, only one Michael Jordan, the list goes on and on. When I hear people make comparisons between this candidate or that candidate as the next Barack Obama, I cringe because there's never going to be another Barack Obama because he had such a unique place in our history and was such a unique individual. Whoever is going to be the nominee is going to have to stand on their own and be their own person. And when I look at the field right now, frankly, I'm not impressed relating to the ability of these people to actually beat Donald Trump. And that is the first task. All the experience in the world, all of the government experience in the world, all of these policy ideas, all of this is wonderful. But if you can't beat Donald Trump, you don't have any business being the nominee. I mean, you can ask Hillary Clinton about that. So the number one litmus test is, can this person stand on a debate stage and go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump and engage in the battle for the future of the republic necessary in order to beat him? And if they don't have the stomach for that, if they don't have the skill set for that, then they don't belong in the race. It's all about the matchup. And that's what too many Democrats, I think, fail to understand. Hmm. Hmm. That. I mean that that I'm gonna that I can agree with right like the that the the matchup it's almost like a the style of the boxer makes the fight right the matchup is actually what's key. What do you feel? And, and you kind of answered this already, but just there is those uh, when they go low, we should go high, people, right? Like there um, there is that sense that like you can't beat Trump by getting down into the mud with Trump. You have to stay above the fray. Yeah, I disagree entirely. I mean, this has been, and I've said this for for a long time, and I've traveled around the country and I've spoken in many, many states, and I've said the same thing. You know, when when they go low, you know, we hit harder. And that has to be the the mindset. You're not going to be, if if you think about this, Donald Trump in a lot of ways is like a schoolyard bully, okay? You don't defeat a schoolyard bully by walking up and reciting poetry uh, and you know, <laughs> extending a hand and things like that. It just doesn't happen. Now, maybe occasionally it happens, but generally it doesn't happen that way. You defeat a schoolyard bully by punching him in the mouth and embarrassing him. And then guess what? He's not the schoolyard bully anymore. And that's exactly what has to happen in a figurative sense in connection with this race. I do believe that you can beat Trump you know, at his own game because I think when you really get down to it, this guy is a paper tiger. This guy is a guy that was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and a gold toilet under his ass. And he is not a a, a fighter when you really get down to it. I think this guy is weak, and I think he folds. But if you don't confront him, if you don't take him on head-to-head, if you're not prepared to take a lot of punishment and give as much, if not more, you're not going to defeat him. One of the problems the Democratic Party has is In a lot of ways, this guy is the Achilles heel for the following reason. The Democratic Party is not necessarily designed 
to nominate someone with the attributes necessary to beat this guy. In a lot of ways, they're designed to nominate someone with the attributes that he matches up so perfectly against. Someone that doesn't want to go low, but wants to go high. And that's one of the reasons why I think he's so difficult to beat. It's the eye of the tiger. It's the thrill of the fight. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, look, I'm generally with you. I'm, gen- I'm generally with the fact that the Democrats have to be willing to punch and have to be willing to go very hard against this guy. But your point about the party nominating process is super interesting to me because you just earlier said that in the same token, we have to be willing to go back and find a way to get those Obama to Trump voters, right? And it just seems to me like the kind of person that is going to be able to get down in the mud and fight with him is not the kind of person who's going to go get those those voters. Let me push back a little bit and explain to you why why I disagree. When you travel to a lot of these swing states, and you know I've been to Ohio eight times in the last four months, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I've spent a lot of time in these states. I I, I grew up in St. Louis. A lot of people don't know that. When you go out and you talk to a lot of these voters in these states, you learn two very important things. Number one, they like Trump because they think he's a fighter. Whether they necessarily agree with his policies 100% or not, they feel like he will fight for them. Now, I think that's a bunch of bullshit to a certain degree. Okay, I don't think he's fighting for working people. I don't think he ever has. I think he's been taking advantage of working people his entire life. But they believe that he is a fighter, whether they agree with his policies or not. So they want a fighter. The second thing that resonates with them is they think he's a genuine guy. And what I mean by that is the guy that holds the rally in front of 20,000 people, if you took him off the stage and you sat him down at a table with you and people that you know, that would be the same guy. So when I say Mm -hmm. genuine, you know, what you see is what you get. These are the two things that resonate with a lot of these voters in these swing states, especially the ones that are predominantly, you know, white and male uh, over the age of 40. That's what resonates with them. They want someone that's going to actually fight with them or fight for them because they think that the system is rigged against them and has been for some time. They want someone that's you know, going to call bullshit, if you will, over things that have gone on, uh, of people trying to take advantage of them. They want someone that's genuine. And those are the things that really resonate with them. And, and they're concerned about three or four core issues. They're concerned about whether they're going to have a good paying, stable job, whether they're going to be able to take care of their health care expenses or those of their loved ones, uh, whether their kid may have a shot at going to college. And in many cases, it may be the first kid in their family or child in their family to have that opportunity. And then the fourth thing that they care about, and you know, we can, we can put our head in the sand and we can deny it and we can talk about how ridiculous it is. They care about this issue on our southern border because they have now been conditioned to believe that these individuals are flooding over the border and taking their jobs and potentially committing violent acts against their family, which, you know, of course, is not true but they're concerned about border security. So when you have Democrats talking about eliminating ICE, I mean, that's just a, that's an absolute dead bang loser. Any Democrat that has come out and said that we should eliminate ICE is not going to beat Donald Trump. And I got to tell you, there's a number of them that have come out in the past and said that. 
I mean, you go to some of these swing states and you talk to voters and you, you talk about that issue and you tell them that you're going to eliminate ICE, that's like telling them that you're going to get rid of their local police force. I mean, that, that just doesn't work. But those are the four core issues that people really care about. You know, this election is not going to be decided in California or New York or Washington, D.C., or what they call the Acela Corridor. It's going to be decided in these key states. And the Democrats better wake up and figure out that these are the issues that really matter to people. Yeah, you either have to take the of those issues, which I agree with, you either have to go at them and say, this is, you know, as you say, like Trump's bullshit on them. We actually care about them. Or if you are going to say things like eliminate ICE, you can't just say that. You have to begin the long process of reconditioning people into the idea that, no, ICE isn't really the people protecting the border. That's CBD. Like, ICE is a separate... But that's a long process that you have to begin to start breaking down whatever misconceptions people might have about it. It's not something that you can win by just saying it right now to those people because they, you know, they, they've been conditioned to believe things. And if you aren't ready to take them on head first and say, no, we're the ones who are right about it, then you have to change their their conditioning on it. But that's why we need Democrats who can read and speak clearly. And whatever. like your arguments that you're making, you're making arguments for, for a good having, candidate, yeah. for having a good candidate, yeah. right? You're not making an know? argument for like Shocker. ICE being like, ICE is bad, we should eliminate it. Well, Which the argument that you're making is that we need to have a Democrat who can explain why it's bad better than just in a soundbite. I mean, that was certainly, yeah, I mean, yes, yes, people who can explain things are good. Uh, <laughs> people who can identify with people are good. I think the, uh, the point about genuineness and fighting uh, is very true. And you need somebody who has those skills as well as somebody who can fight through what's frankly been multiple years of unchecked propaganda that a lot of people have sucked up. And, you know, you can't just roll in and say, hey, that was all propaganda, trust us. You need to you need to deprogram a little bit. It's not like you get pulled out of the cult immediately. You know, you got to you got to go through a process, uh, a process. Wow, I sounded Canadian there with my process. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but uh, you know, whatever. I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, let, let me look. Let me let me just say this. It's all about the matchup. I firmly believe that. OK, let's talk about Beto O'Rourke for a minute. Right? I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, I think he did a remarkable job in connection with the Senate campaign. Uh, I think there's a high degree of likelihood that someday he may be president of the United States. There's no way in hell he's going to beat Donald Trump. It's not going to happen. No guy that apologizes to Ted Cruz for calling him a liar is going to beat Donald Trump. Ted Cruz's own mother doesn't apologize to Ted Cruz, okay? I mean, Ted Cruz's own party calls him Lucifer. If anybody thinks that Puppies and Daisies, Beto O'Rourke, is going to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump on a debate stage and engage in a battle for the future of the republic and come out ahead, they are kidding themselves. It's not going to happen. Now, you put him up, Beto O'Rourke, against other candidates, that's a different ballgame. The other thing I'm going to say is this. Beto O'Rourke is not battle-tested enough and is not tough enough for this race. He got his five- or six-month honeymoon pass because he ran against Ted Cruz, who is hated by all Democrats and probably well over half of the Republicans. That's not what this presidential race is going to look like. And in fact, if if you've watched this play out over the last couple months, 
you know, he's all of a sudden had to take some hits and he hasn't really understood or hasn't dealt with that too well because he's not battle tested. So I, I don't want this to sound like I'm bashing on the guy because I'm actually a fan. I like, I like his message. I think he's very effective, but no guy on a skateboard in a Whataburger parking lot is going to beat Donald Trump. It's just not going to happen. So that's not the, I don't want to bash on the guy. He just needs some hair on his chest. Well, I mean, look, you know, I'm going to get in trouble probably for saying this, but that's my, that's my opinion. That's my belief. I just don't think that a guy that apologizes to Ted Cruz for calling him a liar is going to be tough enough to do battle with Donald Trump. I mean, if you can't, if you can't beat up on Ted Cruz and stand behind it, how the hell are you ever going to beat up on Donald Trump? Michael, let me just say, I have never heard you give an interview like this before, and it is awesome. <laughs> so going off well, of that, we've spoken about your practice. We've spoken about Stormy Daniels, spoken about politics. What is next for you? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to continue to uh, you know, represent Stormy in this case and represent other clients. You know, I think we're going to be making news here shortly in connection with the R. Kelly case. Uh, because I've been working behind the scenes in connection with that situation since April of last year, actually, on behalf of a couple clients. We've been pretty quiet about it. Uh, Did you just give us a scoop? Well, you know, I I think there's likely to be some big developments um, in connection with that case. And, you know, let me also say this. Anytime that my name surfaces now in connection with some of these matters, you know, people immediately, uh, not everyone, but a number of people say, you know, you know, Avenatti's chasing the spotlight or he's out soliciting clients. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, I don't know how I would go about soliciting some of these clients, number one. And number two, the fact of the matter is, is that one of the upsides from my representation of Stormy Daniels is that, again, we get a lot of calls and a lot of inquiries by a lot of people that, for whatever reason, uh, they want me to represent them, and it presents opportunities for us to get involved in various cases, and we get involved in matters that we believe deserve our attention. Um. Wow. Are you at all interested in a in a? <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but it's it's thinking like a lawyer, and it's a it's kind of a st- lawyer one hundred and one question. Are you at all interested in, in, in like a, a, a judicial appointment or anything like that? Like if you, I guess it won't be from President Beto, but if you, you know, if somebody were, were to ping you for that, would that be a career move you would be at all interested in? Well, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for individuals that, that take the bench uh, and venture down that road. You know, I, I think, look, frankly, the likelihood of me being confirmed to a lifetime judicial appointment is probably zero, <laughs> uh, truth be told. Uh, and, and I mean, that would be if I really wanted the, uh, wanted the position. Uh, I think I'm probably too opinionated and at this point controversial for many people. I'm not expecting the phone to ring relating to any judicial appointment opportunity. Well, great. Well, this was Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today. No, it was great. I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, it's nice to have such a freewheeling environment where I can speak my mind. And now I'll just wait for the fallout. <laughs> <laughs> like and, I said, seriously, man, if Jack comes after me, I'm going to need, uh, like, don't leave me out here. <laughs> All right. You got it. I'm in. 
Great. Well, and thank you to all the listeners who joined us today. And also thank you, of course, to Smith AI for sponsoring the show. If you all aren't subscribed to the show, you should be. That's the best way to get every episode when they come out. You should do all the reviews, the stars and write reviews. It moves us up that algorithm so more people can hear us. Listen to the other shows that Above the Law has, the Jabot, as well as uh, Book of Business. You should listen to the full off range of offerings, the Legal Talk Network. And with all of those things said, I think, and oh, read Above the Law and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. We have far fewer followers. Uh, and Stacy, you're at? Stacy Zaretsky. Just at Stacy Zaretsky. All right, perfect. And with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.